0: across the continent. we just have 20 seconds?
1: This is really the biggest issue because the war coming at a time when there was already climate crisis. In East Africa, we're going to see spiking food prices because of the climate crisis in Somalia. And this has been exacerbated by the fact that Ukraine, Russia, the largest grain exporters in the world, massive dependence also on... uh, Food aid coming from the World Food Programme, coming from Ukraine, and the l- loss N- of that leading to a spike in food prices, I think, is going to culminate in a very Nanjela, difficult year, no, particularly no for Bolo, East Africa, we're to whereby end their, the rains have I failed you for a sixth so much season being with and us. we're facing unprecedented drought. This is KCBX HD1 San Luis Obispo at 90.1 FM and KNBX HD1 San Ardo at 91.7 FM. In Avila Beach, we're at 90.9 FM and we serve Cayucos in Northern Morro Bay at 91.1 FM. For the San Inez Valley in the Cambria-San Simeon area, we're at 90.9 FM. In the Laupoke-Vandenberg Village area, we're at 95.1 FM. Local support for KCBX comes from Hospice Slow County, the non-medical volunteer hospice and community grief center. Hospice Slow County helps those who are facing a life-limiting illness, end-of-life, or grief. You can learn more at hospiceslo.org. The following program represents the views of the speakers and not necessarily those of KCBX. KCBX welcomes the comments of those with divergent views. Our phone number is 805-549-8855. Still ahead, Latino USA up at 2 o'clock. Right now it is 1 o'clock and time for Central Coast Voices. Welcome to Central Coast Voices, a program that addresses challenges faced regionally, the need for and consequences of change, and how today's choices impact tomorrow's community. This program is an extension and production of Action for Healthy Communities, and it's provided in collaboration with KCBX. Chris Kington Barker is your host for today's show as she speaks with guests activist Kimberly Ann Johnson and culture activist Stephen Jenkinson. Two authors and teachers from different countries and different generations, one known for his work on death, the other known for her work on birth. You're invited to listen and call in your questions to be part of the discussion today at 805-549-8855. Or you can email them to us at voices at kcbx.org and we'll pass them on to the panel. Now let's join Chris and her guests. Over to you, Chris.
2: Thank you, Brad. I first met Steven Jakinson in 2015 when the documentary film Grief Walker featured featuring him, played at the San Luis Obispo Film Festival to a surprisingly sold-out and standing-room-only audience. It was a visible demonstration of open curiosity and a yearning for discussions around dying and death. And a lot can happen in the span of seven years, and it has. Stephen is joined by CARE activist Kimberly Ann Johnson. Their travel together was birthed from a podcast nurtured through letters, community conversations, and co-authoring a book, Reckoning. The now live tour is coming to San Luis Obispo on March 16th and Santa Barbara, March 15th. And today we'll be in discussion about a little bit more about what that is and how that's something that also might open curiosity for both communities. Kimberly and Stephen, I want to take the time to say hello to you and thank you for joining me today. Thanks,
3: Having us, Chris.
2: Yeah, the the book Reckoning came about after, or actually during the pandemic, correct? And Kimberly, did this start with you reaching out to Stephen because of what was occurring for you in the pandemic, or how did you actually meet one another?
3: Yeah, in August 2021, we were about a year and a half into the pandemic. I had moved across country. I'm a native Californian and I had moved across country in September 2019 to New York. And then the pandemic, of course, started in March 2020. I lived that out for three months in New York and then I ended up moving back across the country. And during that time, uh, my daughter was doing school online. She's 13 at the time. And I also had a book deadline. And then my book, my second book came out. And as a result of that, I became a bit of a there was a bit of a cancel campaign kind of polarity that was born from that book, because that book is about how women heal differently than men do. And Mm -hmm. it integrates sexuality into trauma healing. And so on the right, there were people very upset that I was talking about sexuality and talking about sexuality as a necessary Uh, consideration in the trauma world. And on the other side, it was very controversial because I was just saying that the categories of man and woman exist. That coincided with a lot of difficult relationships, friendships, business relationships uh, that were under a lot of strain. I think everybody went through this where some people, quote unquote, believe in vaccines, other people don't. Some people believe in masks, other people don't. And I was a yoga teacher for a long time, and I was really surprised to see that all of these things that that I thought were communities weren't actually functioning as communities. And so I was very devastated by that. And at that time, a good friend of mine recommended that I speak with Stephen Jenkinson. And so it was sort of amidst that grief and uh, confusion that I reached out for our first conversation
2: and Stephen, what was that like to have Kimberly reach out to you? She, you're obviously different generations, right? Yes. Um, and I know during the during the pandemic, you did a lot of writing, a lot. There, you were up in Canada mm-hmm. during the pandemic. Prior That's to cool. that, you'd done a lot of travel with the work you were doing around deaf yeah. and around the deaf adversity that exist um was that connection for you well in some ways it was a blessed relief
0: to be honest to for somebody (sighs) to call me and they weren't really asking me to be the death guy yeah in fact not at all i would say yeah no i didn't really know too much you know i mean at the time i don't know that i think some things have changed but at the time i was on some kind of speed dial for interviews and so uh you know, you can only take in so many particulars of the slant of the interviewers up ahead of time.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: then at some point, you just have to be yourself, come what may, whatever the interviewer wants to do, you don't have many alternatives to being yourself uh, at the end of the day. So so I didn't know much about what Kimberly wanted to talk about, nor what had befallen her prior to us getting together. So I was distinctly, and I would say sublimely unprepared, not unprepared, non-prepared. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. that I, I, was, uh, I came to it as a, huh. And very quickly, I was, uh, I was disarmed in the best possible sense of the term by the, um, the kind of undefendedness of the person, the lack of polemics of the person who was talking to me. And uh, it was not only a blessed relief from what can happen, in these encounters, but there was something urgent, beyond authentic, something urgent. You know, and I I myself am a practitioner of urgency that Mm -hmm. I think was born of my days in the death trade. And I haven't met many people who want to dance like that. And I understand why, I'm not really condemning anyone. But when occasionally there's a dance partner that comes through who says, let's go, this is very uncommon and so i was um i was enlivened i think right off the bat and i think the the transcript of our first encounter that that forms the beginning of the book reckoning kind of gives it gives a kind of voice to that some sense of being summoned by the uh, by the heartbreak of another human
2: yeah yeah the the book is that the actual transcript from the podcast
3: The first part of the book is the first two conversations. So after that first podcast that night, I wrote to Natalie, Stevens, wife, who does a lot of his booking. And I just wanted to say thank you, because it had taken a very short time between the time I reached out to ask if we could talk and when we actually spoke. Mm -hmm. And just to say that I'd been totally undone and kind of weeping the whole day. And I think I used the words that felt like an invited indictment. And then very quickly after I sent that email, Steven responded to me and said, let's talk again tomorrow before OK moves into your spare room. And no one had ever offered to have a second talk. And I thought that was also very, it was a daunting invitation, but I understood, wow, that that's even bizarre. How many times we just have one-off talks and we never get to follow up with a person. And right. what does that also mean that we can just decide who someone is and put them in a category because we've only had one hour with them or something? And so we had that second talk and then after that, a few months went by. Word ha- word traveling around was that Steven was gonna step back from interviews for a while. And I thought, okay, and all of this, you know, on, on Instagram it's like a one minute reel and then a one one meme. What if we went back through all of Steven's major works? and had a conversation about each one of them. So the body of the book is those seven conversations, but then we wrote a letter to one another after we finished it, and then I wrote an introduction. So that's the entirety of the book. It's a dialogue book.
2: And it is a magnificent dialogue between the two of you. You're both incredibly um, linguistic in your approach. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful dance that you do do during the book. Um, what was it for you? Did you have the sense of urgency that Stephen picked up on when he took your call?
3: Definitely. I, I still have it. Uh, I have a 15 year old daughter. Mm. I see how quickly things are changing in terms of what we're allowed to talk about and not allowed to talk about what she feels she's able to say and not able to say uh, the confusion about what is okay to be public, what should be private, um, who do we share what with. It seems that we share more than ever, but we feel less connected and and less able to share when we're in physical proximity with someone. And then, of course, I, as Stephen comes from the death trade, I came out of the birth world. So my first book is about motherhood and about how the culture there's no sense of culture when women become mothers and so then we see so much fragmentation that ends up being categorized as mental health and the pandemic has only worsened birth outcomes and so many women that I work with want to have intact physiological births and end up with surgery or end up with an outcome that they're devastated by and because this is my territory of work I see what that does to marriages, to families, to uh, someone's sense of wholeness and how that impacts them going down the road. So I absolutely feel uh, very compelled and a sense of urgency, but also tempered with a sense of uh, a healthy sense of inadequacy, I think, to what one person can actually do to change that.
2: Yeah. Stephen, the last time. Um, you and I spoke, it was when you had done your book, your your last book, um, when you were here in San Luis Obispo. And you were saying how the response to that book um, in San Francisco, because it was a call for the ages. And um, do you remember that? Do you remember the response that you got in San Francisco, where there was almost this blaming... Um, you had a response from people of the generation, from um, the baby boomer generation, who it, it was different than you expected, and you were just in wonder of it, not reaction to it. But do you recall that?
0: I think you're referring to the book I wrote about elderhood called Come of Age. Come of Age. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Do I remember s- specific
2: probably not specific
0: Uh, mayhem i try i try not to you know let that burn into me. but yeah there's there certainly is a pushback generationally Mm -hmm. to my plea for people of my generation i'm 68 i think now my plea uh for people of my general demographic to recognize the the impossibility of the inheritance that we're bestowing in the act of bestowing upon people of uh, Kimberly's generation and subsequently through her, to her child and so on. And, um, you know, the, the irony is that so many people of my age are looking for elders to be inspired by. Yes. And in actual fact, there's, there comes a time, surely to God, there comes a time when you are not on the receiving end of the bounty of life i mean i just think it's probably so but it i have very few takers on the notion <laughs> apparently you get to be on the on the feeding frenzy of the upside of life for as long as it suits you and uh I, you know i simply i can't get behind that conceit not for five minutes and so my plea in san francisco and other places was something in the order of you know limitations are as God-given as bounty is. If you want to use the language of God's intent, which I'm no expert on, uh, failing that, if you want to talk about the natural order of things, it's the same observation, that limits belong to bounty. And, uh, you know, I'm speaking in the most bountiful uh, frame of reference that the world has probably ever seen. Mm -hmm. Anglo-North America, I'm talking about. And so, if you can't if you can't sell limit, then what you have on your hands is a kind of slowly unfolding uh, destruction, uh, a, a reversal of the natural order thing so, that's so desperate. Um, that uh, and, and, and the blindness, the unwillingness to see it for what it is, is probably the most desperate aspect of the time that we're in, to me, personally. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I'm no longer shocked by the pushback. Yeah. I'm, I, I find it odd that people of my generation won't take the invitation to lay down their, the feeding tube of life long enough to become food. I mean, in the, in the deepest abiding sense of the term, to become food to, to the generations that now precede them.
2: Yeah. 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 And take a real quick moment. I'm Chris Kington Barker with you for Center Coast Voices on KCBX, your Center Coast listener supported radio station. The voices with me today are Kimberly Johnson, and she's an author, postpartum care activist, trauma educator, structural body worker, and a mother. And Stephen Jacobson has a master's in theology, social work, is an author, culture activist, ceremonialist, farmer and a father. We're talking about Reckoning Live, an evening of culture, work, and community coming to Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo on March 15th and 16th. I invite you to bring your questions or comments about today's topic. For the discussion, you can call 805-549-8855, and Brad will bring those questions forward to us, or you can email me at voices at KCBX. Dot org. Given what what um, you were just talking about, Stephen, it must really feel powerful for the two of you to be able to have the conversations that you have been having in these recent times. Not so much powerful, but important.
0: Consequential is the word I'd probably use.
2: Mm, yeah. You know when we're, when we're
0: look. First thing to say is when you, when there's a certain kind of dynamic capacity that begins to open up between any two people, Mm -hmm. uh, generally speaking, we wait for romance to be the vector for that kind of thing. But we know, I mean, in our bones, we know that there are other manifestations of it equally as compelling and probably more available to the current regime as a correction than most romantic tales tend to be.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, that's the first thing to acknowledge. Uh, the, the second thing is that, uh, I mean, I'm not going to hide the light under the bushel here. I'm not going to pretend that we're just a couple of schmucks, you know, making our way. That's not true. I mean, there's, no. there's real capacity uh, between the two of us and within each one of us. And uh, things happen as a consequence of our willingness to, in an unguarded and unrehearsed fashion, wonder in real time at considerable risk to our own uh standing let's put it this way that that's very true to get someone with whom you can do that is is so rare that it's proper to submit to it i think rather than understand yourself to be somehow in charge of it Mm -hmm. the people who come to the things that we do are the first line of response. They're the first responders to what we're characterizing now and they're to be listened to, you know, not obeyed, but certainly held in some regard. And uh, they, they reassure us in sometimes vehement fashion that there is genuine consequence to speaking what is often deemed to be unspeakable, not in a sense of profanity, but in the sense of preference or what sells in the, in the marketplace of public opinion, things of that kind. I don't say that we're contrary for its own sake, I say that as a consequence of following down what we've been entrusted with in terms of our mutual life's work, that fidelity that we have puts us at odds with much of what prevails in what, let's call it the dominant culture of the West. So, if, you've, if you can do that and you're not alone when you're doing it, you'd yeah. be a fool you know, to proceed otherwise, and so far my foolishness has been defeated.
2: <laughs> Kimberly how has this been for you um to be able first to put into the book what you were able to put into the book and then to, to be able to do these shows live have this conversation and have people attend who may have the same kinds of um the same kinds of thirst or not at all be but at least sit and listen and wonder or at least think about it
3: it's a very mysterious process and i can't since i'm a part of it it's hard I, you know, I'm getting a lot personally out of it, right? And I think there's some sort of ethos that if you're really enjoying it, or you're personally getting a lot out of it, you should worry more what other people are getting out of it, because they're coming, right? We're the te- so, so-called so teachers, and the people who are arriving, we need to really consider what they're getting out of it. Uh, which, ha- we have a certain level of preparation, but the preparation happens more in just what's, what life has brought to us up to this point, rather than a script or we want we want to control what happens and make sure that we talk about these certain kinds of things or get a certain point across we're not really trying to get a point across but you know there's i didn't assume that we had a lot in common to begin with so the how we think about things and and how we're living in the world and even you know, for instance, Stephen Jenkinson is not on social media. I am on social media. That Mm -hmm. already means that we're working with completely different, different sets of information, just like most people in the world today, even the ones who are on social media, are working with completely different information sets. So there's a huge opportunity in setting aside assumptions, and not being willing to just jump to conclusions. For instance, I'm a... 48 year old white woman, Stephen is a 68 year old white man. And that's the lens that most people these days are going to see and filter what they hear us saying through, because that's the easiest place to engage with it. And we're asking people to undo that a little to shake that a little bit looser. Because underneath the surface, I think we all know at this point that there's an idea that men are bad and women are good now because the reverse used to maybe be true, and women didn't have as much, and men had more, and so now there's this overcompensatory tone to most interactions, including with parents and children. Parents were too authoritarian. Children are inherently good. Therefore, now parents need to really deal with themselves. The kids are always good, and so parenting has a lot to do with overcompensation, and so when we're together we're really trying to track something that's totally different than these threads that have now become like like a stencil that you draw with so now you can't even see the sheet of paper that's underneath it because everything is you can't draw outside the stencil there's only these choices of shapes and your pencil has to go in those shapes and if they're out of that shape tear the paper throw it away you're just done with that Mm -hmm. and so even though uh, there's Some I think inherent Uh, for my experience. My first two conversations with Stephen Jenkinson felt like confrontation, but not confronting my personality necessarily. Confronting the fundament of all of the ideas that my entire worldview was based on, that I didn't even really know it was based on. And so that happens as a a part of listening to us because we're not really willing to go down those stenciled. Paths
2: yeah there there seems to be this you know as as long as I'm not having to question or I don't have to think about it, or um, there isn't a pushback, I can just continue with whatever my thoughts are in the way that I'm living and carry on, everything's fine, but as soon as there's any kind of pushback, that's bad, I'm right, you're wrong. And we've really gotten entrenched in all of this um, from all sides. And I I love the illustration of the paper getting blurred with all those lines that you can't color outside of, right? What you can't say, what you can say. Um, It it would have to be... um, how do you get response from the audience for this um, saying the things that people want to say because they do think it and can't say it out loud or don't allow themselves to say out loud?
0: I think we trick them. Oh, yeah. What's that look like? A sleight of hand. Well, we do it first. Ah. We basically, we're saying, well, it's like this. <laughs> Here's here's how you can wonder if, about things without having to be certain. Here's how you can inhabit certain possibilities without the prerequisite of some kind of I'm ready to die for it belief thing. Yeah. Yeah. We, so we do it first. You could call it modeling. I, I don't think that's what it is. I mean, I'm making it sound much more deliberate uh, yeah. than it actually is. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, so we don't sit in the dressing room beforehand and go, "Yeah, high and I'll hit them low. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like that happens. Why? Because it's a tightrope act for us too, you see. Yeah. Like we got it figured out and look out, it's coming to uh, you know, a seat near you anytime now. It's more, um, you know, the times require things of us that our beliefs forbid. And uncertainty is one of those things. Mm-hmm. And a willingness to 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 proceed without knowing how is a prerequisite of being a sane person in a crazy time. It's a crazy time. We're not post pandemic, not by any serious sense of the term. No. I mean it's you know, forget about the public health issues, you know, microbially. I'm talking about the the after shocks, which are ongoing and they're indistinguishable from the main event at this point in you know, I wrote a book a few years ago called The Generation's Worth, and the last bit of it said something in the order of, <laughs> colloquially speaking, we ain't seen nothing yet. We ain't seen nothing yet, and I, I'm whole to that now. But I can tell you that when we're doing the events that we're doing, you can see the seismic cracks in the firmament, in the belief firmament, in the conviction racket. You You can actually see them. And... Typically what people will do in a nominally free culture is double down on their beliefs as soon as there's any serious question about them. Right. And by, by dint of our regard we have for each other and for what we're doing, far from that, we're actually wondering about the instinct to double down in the first place. And we're trying to re, recalibrate what citizenship Of a kind of devout form could take in a time like this. I think that's what's happening. And then we open it up to all kinds of questions at the end. Very few of these things are questions in in a normal sense of the term. They're demands or requests for more. They're demands to defend yourself in terms of what you might said twenty minutes ago. Things of this kind. And you know, there's no there's no merit in being right any more than there's merit in being wrong uh, in in encounters like this. What we're trying to do is be alive. And I can promise you after sitting at the bedside of so many people who are now all dead, quite a long time dead too, I feel personally challenged to stand and deliver on the fact, on the giddy good fortune of still being right, excuse me, still being alive. Yeah? Yeah. And I'm trying to translate, what does it mean to be alive? And this is one of the ways I get to do it. And this is what gives me a sense of good fortune beyond how it's doing or beyond the buy-in that might be there you know, in the, in the marketplace.
2: My guests are uh, Kimberly Johnson, an author, postpartum care activist, trauma educator, structural body worker and mother, and Stephen Jenkinson, who has a master's in theology, social work, is an author, culture activist, Ceremonialist, farmer, and father, and they are joining me because they're also going to be joining us on the Central Coast in the not too distant future on Santa Barbara in Santa Barbara, March fifteenth, in Santa Luis Obispo on March sixteenth, um, when they will be bringing Reckoning live to the Central Coast. Um, and welcome back, Kimberly and Stephen. Thank you. You know, you the um, from birth to death and all those spaces in between. Um, Kimberly, when when you talked about some of the things that you've encountered on the health side as a health activist, are you still practicing in the birth field right now?
3: I don't attend births, but okay. I still work with a lot of people who are pregnant and people who are recovering from birth.
2: And there's, there has been just a whole lot about right and wrong and what you should and shouldn't do. And I think what really culminated in the, in that whole period of vaccine, no vaccine, and that really hit you in terms of the, the rightness and wrongness about that. Um, can you talk a little bit about that period of time and what was going on for you and your thoughts before you and Stephen got together
3: Sure uh well I in kind of three distinct worlds that I'm a part of so the birth world became very fragmented um based on whatever the evolving policies were because doulas for time weren't allowed into hospitals Some doulas were needing to be on FaceTime or on on a screen in order to be able to participate in birth. Women were having to choose if they could only have one person with them. Did they want their husband or their life partner or did they want a healthcare practitioner with them? It was greatly impacting where they were deciding to birth Um, in a lot of hospitals. You know, I spoke with many midwives who said, They begged the EMTs in the county where they worked to please not cut them off because the EMTs were having to rank responses that they would go to. And midwives need emergency backup in order to be able to do safe home birth. And so um, the birth workers were under a lot more stress because the stakes were much higher. I I had one I just interviewed the other day who said the doctor, when she called them, said, don't come here. We're way too Fill, do whatever you can to keep this birth at home. So midwives ended up in positions that they weren't used to being in either. And that's one of the outcomes of what we're talking about is how are we supporting all of, I mean, there were many articles in the Times written about the therapists themselves during the pandemic who are trying to keep it together. They don't have it together. They're trying to keep it together and they're trying to keep it together for everyone else. So what is the impact of all of this practice wisdom having been you know designated to mental health or to specific functions that used to be you know held by a village put on just certain individuals and then what are we doing now uh, as a result of that so uh, at the time i was like everybody else it was happening in real time we didn't know you know i remember the first month we didn't know anything about masks so nobody was wearing them right we were we didn't know who this disease impacted how it impacted we were learning that in real time and so that kind of suspended um thing is is also why so many dying people were the first to get hit in all of the nursing homes so this disease somehow really showed us how how much we push birth and death to the margins so much so that you have to work with it to even have seen it most of the time. Mm -hmm. When I first started working with Stephen Jenkins and I told him, I've never really seen death other than in India on the street. But here in the United States, I've only seen one death. And it's like, well, that says something about you. It says something about the culture and it says something about the way that we choose to live our life. The same goes with birth. Now there's this huge thing, people who don't have kids, And and it's like the no kids club and then the people who have kids as if the next generation is only the responsibility of those who physically gave birth to them. So those are the kinds of things that were came to the surface in a in a clearer way. Things that I already suspected, things that I already had my finger on, then just became way more exaggerated. I'm also a part of a breathwork community. Um, I studied breathwork. I'm a yoga teacher. That community became filled with conspiracy theorists, people who didn't even believe that COVID is any kind of special kind of a virus. And then on the other hand, people who had radically different points of view and and everyone's disgusted by everyone else, right? Like everybody's disgusted by everybody else's viewpoints and there becomes these lines that seem irreparable and in my case have been irreparable in many situations.
2: And Stephen, when Kimberly came to you in those kinds of discussions, that kind of came out on the first podcast when, when you had a conversation that was just a, a wondering, a conversation, an observation. Were you seeing the same things and, and from the same perspective, a different perspective?
0: Well, we were, we're different uh, places in life. Right. in our working lives, I think, as well. So you're asking a guy who's was principally a farmer through the entire period you're referring to now.
2: Yeah. So there's not okay. a lot. Of, Good
0: to know. Yeah. Not a lot of conspiracy dilemmas on the farm.
3: <laughs> Good and
0: point. I, I don't say that in any superior sense. No, I, no, I, no, no, I get that it. That <laughs> the I would hear about these things uh, not as a consequence of the walking wounded reporting them to me, but as a consequence of the uh, contentiousness that began to filter into the interviews, where I was obliged, not that I obeyed the obligation, but I was obliged to assume certain positions of vehemence oh. about uh, various, quote, issues of the day, as if as if the more strongly you can hold the view, the more legitimate it is to do so, yes. which I, I've never, you know, trusted or even been overly inclined to vehemence, urgency, yes, but I really make a distinction between these things. Urgency is taking dictation from the dilemmas of the times. You know, the 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 vehemence I'm talking about is oppositional, for the most part, it seems to me. And it was true then; it's more true now, I think. So mm-hmm. the the kind of terrible bifurcation of uh, people that were striving towards some kind of village-minded community apparatus. I mean, n- very few of these things held up against the, quote, differences of opinion that became little micro-religions and remain so to this day. Yeah. So it, it seems to me that one of the things to echo what Kimberly said is that we have a circumstance now where the appearance of COVID has been a remarkable and so unwelcome truth teller a revealer of sorts yeah a kind of revelator god that's what the covid 19 has become to me and uh, i don't give it any particular power i'm talking about its consequence here now mm-hmm. it's only secondarily a cause of death but primarily it's a cause of of fractu- fractiousness and indiv- you know as if north america could become more individualized I mean, it's inconceivable since this is the birthplace of that, but yet it's it certainly happened.
2: Yeah. And we, you know, we, we continue to take pride in that individualism, that me-ism, that, um, that I stand for me and for nothing else. And yet we, at the same time, act as if we have a cohort. We belong to a cohort. Um of all individuals it's a it's an interesting dynamic yeah it's hard you remember the old
0: Groucho Marx observation who who would want to belong to a club that would have me as a member (laughs) that would
2: have me as a member right yeah
0: there's something there I mean who wants to be (laughs) a a group who wants to participate in a group of rabid individualists I mean there's by definition (laughs) no group (laughs) exactly at the molecular level, it's just free radicals bouncing off each other with increasing uh, stridency, says it were, And sometimes you have to stand back, and uh, like uh, those what they call musical chairs at a children's birthday party, you count <laughs> the casualties as the chairs are withdrawn. I think that's the time we're in. It's casualty time.
2: When you go out to do your speaking tour, what compelled you to do this tour? Is it that sense of urgency? Or is, you know, and what more is behind it?
0: It's the money, mostly.
2: (laughs) Farmers don't make much these days, right? (laughs) Well, at least that's on it. Yeah.
0: There's not a lot of money involved, no. Um, Well, I think for... For myself, you know, th- there's a certain point at which you begin to realize, man, you've seen almost everything you're going to see for the first time. You're seeing things for the 18th and the 27th time at this juncture. Yeah. And novelty is a thing of the past, one. Two, you know, you're blessed for the moment with relative good health and a sense of, of engagement activity in your mind. If you took, take a look around, you realize that's a time-limited arrangement. Three, then, how are you going to translate the fact that you're still alive into a realization that you're entered into the grace time of your life, which I believe that I have? I should have been dead several times over, and here I sit. But, you know, that's all these things are temporary. So, how do you translate the transience of your life in a place where necessity is an early casualty of affluence? Uh, and the answer for me is you have to invent the necessity that 's missing or the sequence of necessities that are missing. Very few people are asking me to do anything and so these things are for the most part self appointed you know people will will clamor for me at, toward in the interviews about the keys to the elder universe and i can I can speak to them in an hour and a half in an interview about this subject and at the end of it they're still asking me what it is and what does it look like and who gets to be one and all these things and at some point i have to say you know i haven't been hiding from you for the last 90 minutes (laughs) i mean i can talk about it but i'd much prefer to in a manifest fashion contend elderishly if you will about other things and not talk about elderhood as if it's a discrete worthy subject unto itself, which I don't think it is. Elders are what they do after all. And uh, so most of it is is self-appointed, but I'm really curious to hear what the hell Kimberly's doing out here with me.
3: (laughs) I
2: I am too. What the heck? What the heck?
3: Well, first of all, being together in person. So deciding to be together, deciding that it's, worth it that yeah radio is good and zoom is good and um there's other ways we can be heard but there's something else that happens when people are together in a room and it's a little pathetic to have to say that I think but it's true there's there's more and more incentives to not be together I have lots of friends who are therapists they're not going to go back to an office to actually sit in the office with the people that they work with Um, We can just opt to stay in our personal space with our personal screen, and many people will do that. So it's not lucrative to get out from behind the screen. Uh, I have been an online business for seven years. I've taught thousands and thousands of people about their nervous systems online now for a long time, way before everybody knew what Zoom was. I was already doing it on Zoom because I thought that that was a helpful thing. do i thought i could reach more people and i thought i could help people understand this knee jerk reaction towards moral outrage from the inside out and i thought i could affect people's capacity for dialogue i thought i could affect people's capacity for reconciliation and repair and maybe i have maybe it has worked on some levels but for me that's the main thing Um, it takes a lot you know i'm a single mom i leave home i have to figure out how to make home be okay for a while while I'm on the road. But the main thing is because I'm dedicated to being in person and showing people and providing an opportunity to gather at least around things that I think matter.
2: How do you see that we come out of this? Do you see any doorways, Kimberly?
3: Well, I'm just trying to figure out how to help people be in it.
0: Very good.
2: Good answer.
0: Yeah.
3: So, and this is part of that. Part of part of it is being in it and being willing to sit with it and being willing to name it and being willing to uh, maybe name, I mean, a lot of times people, that's what writers do, I guess, name things that other people perceive but don't quite have the language to find. But... To sit together outside of a religious context, outside of a quote-unquote spiritual context that someone might recognize as spiritual, to sit in something that feels like it's old, it feels like it's something that somehow people might have done together in the past, to try to be worthy of being eldered. I mean, I'm being eldered in real time. I know it, and I know that it's not going to happen forever. So... I'm going to say yes to it as much as I can while it can be happening.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And is it also about having having people step into it as well and say... I don't
3: think people know what they're stepping, stepping into, into. Most into? of the time, maybe half the people do and half the people don't. Mm-hmm. Because we're also inviting much more into the space besides the person that is Stephen Jenkinson and the person that is Kimberly Johnson. Mm -hmm. They're the people that come, but there's the ancestors that come. There's the gods that come. There's the dead that makes its appearance. And so I'm just trying to be available to whatever it is that wants to be spoken in that time and space. Stephen,
2: you're really good with words. If you were to describe what the evening with you and Kimberly would be like, what is it?
0: Hmm. Well, like I said in the last answer, I haven't held back from you here. So I've, I believe I've spoken fairly well uh, about the kind of thing you're asking me, but not to be coy. I'd say um, it's something that I would come to if I'd heard about it. Uh, it's like the, the Orphan Wisdom School. You know, I put the Orphan Wisdom School together because I just simply insisted that there had to be a colloquium of the willing of the of the fair-minded or the yeah there had to be that was not about persuading convincing changing affirming it was about the world you see not it was not about the participants who came and just so you hear my emphasis on citizenship and less on self-realization and the rest yeah okay so this is what I, I believe that we're insisting upon is we're reiterating conditions of citizenship in how we're addressing ourselves to these things. We don't talk about citizenship. We don't talk about the radicalization of the um, the obligations that still accrue to people who are, who are from a nominal democracy or any of the other politicized stuff. There's a possibility of approaching these things Without have to, having to assume a position of finality or authority about them, and the function of wonder is the function that draws you, it seems to me, closer to something that's divine in this world than any conviction that you can muster will ever do. And so we're we're worshiping without a church. That's what wondering is: worshiping without a dogma worshipping without an adversary, worshipping without the ante of anything. Yeah.
2: Yeah. How does this, um, you said that this conversation that you've been having with Kimberly and that she started with you was pretty much a breath of fresh air since you'd been pursued frequently for death, in the death trade, and the elder trade, yeah, and yet that that too is a part of your core. Um, how does that fit into this, or does it not? Well, it, it's a good question,
0: and I, my answer would be. Sometimes you have to decide. Let's use the death thing as an example. The death <laughs> thing isn't that terrible language. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let, let's imagine you have you have a choice. You have to make ongoingly. One is. That you talk about death. Mm -hmm. It's okay. But after a point, for me personally, there's not a lot of more things I can say. And I've gone on record, so enough already. You've literally gone on record. You've gone on record literally. That's cool. Mm -hmm. So the alternative would be this. That you speak as if there is death. You see? The death is in your eye. It is on your tongue. It's not the content of what you're saying. It becomes if you will, a kind of vector or a kind of uh, means of inquiry. You speak as if you're a person who will die, not speaking about dying from some great remove. Right, from a distance,
2: yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah. I think that's what we're doing. And so this is why, you know, everything, everything belongs. It's not clear that it all fits, but it certainly belongs. And that's more the sense of urgency, too. Well, I don't. I don't know how much time I got. That's what I mean. So I'm not taking for granted being able to speak to you now, or sitting here in New York City, uh, about to go on an event we're doing tonight here in town. I'm not. I'm not looking past that. And I'm saying, if this is it, I mean, this is going to sound rather desperate, I'm sure. But the truth of the matter is, I have to come to these things each and every time with the following uh, card in my pocket, and it reads like this. If this is it, if this turns out to be the last time you get to do this, are you governing yourself accordingly? Does it make you desperate or does it make you devout? Hmm. And more often than not, if I may say, I tend to be a devout guy, and I ain't that desperate. I think... (laughs) Things may change if I can't breathe and all the rest of it. Yeah. But for now, um, I'm I'm a lucky guy. And I but I have to translate that. You see, that's what the citizenship thing is all about. I don't I don't walk around counting my lucky stars. You know, I admire the night sky on behalf of those who are fixated on the sun. <laughs> that's what I do.
2: Hmm. And Kimberly for you how is this for you i mean balancing where you were before and where you are now
3: you mean where i was before like the belief systems that i that came into mm-hmm. question and and moving forward knowing kind of what i know now or yeah well, I don't think I'd, I don't think I'm too much different from a lot of people who are I feel many people are involved in complicated calculus right now. Simple things like going on a trip now are like, well, are we going to take into account how the birds responded when we weren't flying all over the world? And are we going to take into account the fuel consumption? And but is it worth it for me to go because someone invited me and then I think I'm going to do work, good work? while I'm there, but maybe do they have somebody who already lives in that place who could do it just as well? Or even if they didn't do it as well, maybe they could do it moderately as well, and then it it doesn't trade off. So uh, I think I'm doing a lot of that complicated calculus, just like I think many people are doing. What's worth it? What relationships are worth it? What, um, is it? How much do I want to be online? Do I need to be like Audrey Lord said. Can the master's tools dismantle the master's house, or do I need to abandon the house and get different tools? Uh, so I'm asking those questions, realizing that there's no easy answers. Realizing that uh, I have to find a, another way to operate in the world. I am a little prone t- to desperation, so uh, realizing that I have to find another kind of undercurrent, and then also way. How does that citizenship look? I've always been very compelled uh, by making things more equitable, making things more, uh, trying to find a way to have more justice. But what does that also look like for me personally in my personal life? And on another maybe sort of funny note, but not so funny, in the meantime, I've gotten a dog and I've gotten married. Because I was one of those people that didn't want more responsibilities and felt like my freedom was getting a little encroached upon by uh, worldly responsibilities, including getting married. So I think Stephen Jenkinson kicked me off the cliff to get married, and uh, so now I'm a wife, and uh, so now I've I've got another level of alchemy happening in my life, which
2: you obviously needed,
3: right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wanted it. And uh, but also even like even just saying the word wife right now yeah. is like am I supposed to say partner? Yeah. Am I so, is wife oh does is, is wife belittling myself? Um right. what does it mean to to want to be a wife? Right. Uh, so just those things seem small, but those micro calculations are everyone is going through those and everything right. you say is being run through that stencil. By
2: something stencil. by someone.
3: Yeah. And am I if I say wife, am I taking away someone else's rights? Am I not a less of a feminist? Um, I mean, a lot of people, when I said I was getting married, they looked horrified. Other people looked, you know, <laughs> pleasantly surprised. Relieved. Relieved. And
1: this is- <laughs> but a lot
3: of people are like, wait, what? You're supposed to be my model and you're getting married? Why do you need to get married? Why would you do that? You can have everything... You want without getting married. Why don't you just live together and do all these other things? It seems crazy that you would want to do something like getting married because you're so progressive. So um, there's all of these kind of shoots that we're supposed to live in, where if you're this, that means you're this, 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 then also. And it's not okay to be a mixture.
2: And that's a great segue into what reckoning we're all doing and what reckoning is about. I want to thank my guests, Kimberly Johnson, Stephen Jenkinson. If you enjoyed today's discussion, there is a lot more waiting for you on March 15th in Santa Barbara, March 16th in San Luis Obispo. For details, times, and locations, go to the website orphanwisdom.org under the events tag. Central Coast Voices has been sponsored by Action for Healthy Communities and the San Luis Obispo Community Foundation. Join Mario Espinoza Kulik uh, next week. I'm Chris Kington Barker, and thank you for joining us today.